0: Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 is our sermons text. Let's all pray before we read. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do ask now for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We are thankful this morning for the church and the gifts that Christ gave to his church as he ascended on high. Gifts of prophets, teachers, pastors. We thank you especially today for Martin Luther, a great teacher in your church. We pray, O God, to help us to hear um, what he has to say, which hopefully is what your word has to say to this congregation this day. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, "Brethren, have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the word of the Lord you can be seated. I will offer a little commentary as I read Martin Luther's sermon, which is called Two Kinds of Righteousness. Um, I will offer a brief introduction, though, to help us to hear it better, hopefully. Um, As many of you heard, Elder Fuller um, and his family fell sick this week, and so um, this was kind of a last-minute effort on our part uh, to give you something this morning. So I do ask for your patience. I know it takes a kind of special patience. Uh, to listen to someone read a sermon. Um, I've been in your shoes before, and I, and I ask for your patience now to be a, a gracious hearer um, this morning. Um, this sermon by Martin Luther, Luther um, was likely delivered in Wittenberg, Germany, the same place where he nailed his 95 theses, um, just two years after that event. Um, so this was most likely delivered in 1519 um, in Germany. In short, hopefully you'll hear this from the sermon, but it's, it's mainly divided in about three parts. Um, uh, the first part talks about the first kind of righteousness. And that's that righteousness that we receive from Christ. Outside of ourselves and outside of anything that we can do. Um, we receive it from Christ. Luther calls it the alien righteousness. Um, it's imputed by the free grace of God. Quite apart from anything that we can do. So that's kind of this first part of the sermon. Um, the second part or the second kind of righteousness, as Luther calls it, is the product or fruit of that first righteousness. And I hope you hear that connection. It's because of the first righteousness comes the second righteousness, which is the righteousness in our own lives. Um, The works that we do before God and for our neighbor around us. And then lastly, he'll offer some uh, concluding remarks and very practical application. Um, With the verses in Philippians, Luther, um, like Paul, he seeks to stir us up to good works. Um, Not in order that these good works would save us, but precisely because we already have been saved and have our righteousness in Jesus Christ. We have this condescending Lord from heaven um, working for us, being our servant. The work of Christ for us, that you'll hear over and over again from Luther, for us is not only for our justification, but also should be our chief motivator, an example for our posture before God and to our neighbor. So this sermon begins in this first part with a beautiful picture of the righteousness of Christ that we have through faith by grace alone given to us freely. And it's precisely because of this he then transitions to the righteousness that we are to work towards in this life. It's so clearly based on that first righteousness. He uses both positive and negative examples to teach us this in the third section. And since he will encourage his hearers to become more like Christ in their interaction with one another, especially as they are wronged and offended in this life, he ends the sermon by addressing some common objections to what he recommends. And it's in this address of the objections that he ends the sermon, I think, rather abruptly. So it's going to feel weird at the end. Um, Nevertheless, it's a rich sermon that calls us to good works precisely because we have the free justification in Christ Jesus. Um, So he's he's answering objections at the very end, and he just kind of leaves it off there. I don't know what happened, if there's something more preached. Roman Catholics could have been banging down the door, for all we know. Um, So... Anyways, I hope you, I hope you do uh, glean some, some good, some, the the work that Luther has put into this um, for ourselves, glean some wisdom from this. So I do think it's a, it's a very good sermon um, that we should hear. So starting now from the words of Luther, two kinds of righteousness. There are two kinds of righteousness, just as man's sin is of two kinds. The first is alien righteousness. That is the righteousness of another instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ, by which he justifies through faith, as is written in 1 Corinthians. Whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. And in John 11, Christ himself states, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Later he adds in John 14:6. I am the way and the truth and the life. This righteousness then is given to men in baptism when they are truly repentant. Therefore, a man can with confidence, boast in Christ and say, mine are Christ's living, his doing and speaking, his suffering and dying. Mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered and died as he did. Just as a bridegroom possesses all that is bride's, and she all that is his. For the two have all things in common, because they are one flesh, Genesis 2. So Christ and the church are one spirit, Ephesians 5, 29. Thus the blessed God and Father of mercies has, according to Peter, granted to us very great and precious gifts in Christ, 2 Peter 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This inexpressible grace and blessing was long ago promised to Abraham in Genesis when it says, In thy seed, that is in Christ, shall all the nations be blessed. Isaiah 9.6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given to us it says because he is entirely ours with all his benefits if we believe in him as we read in Romans 8:32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will he not also give us all things with him therefore everything which christ has is ours graciously bestowed on us unworthy men out of god's sheer mercy Although we have rather deserved wrath and condemnation and hell also. Even Christ himself, therefore, who says he came to do the most sacred will of his father, John 6, became obedient to him. And whatever he did, he did it for us and desired it to be ours, saying, I'm among you as one who serves Luke 22. He also states, this is my body, which is given for you. Isaiah 43 says, You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Therefore, the apostle calls it the righteousness of God in Romans 117. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Finally, in the same epistle, chapter 3, 28, such a faith is called the righteousness of God. We hold that a man is justified by faith. This is an infinite righteousness and one that swallows up all sin in a moment for it is impossible that sin should exist in Christ. On the contrary, he who trusts in Christ Exist in Christ. He is one with Christ, having the same righteousness as He. It is therefore impossible that sin should remain in Him. This righteousness is primary, it is the basis, the cause, the source of all our own actual righteousness. For this is the righteousness given in place of the original righteousness lost in Adam. It accomplishes the same as that original righteousness would have accomplished. Rather, it accomplishes more. It is in this sense that we are to understand the prayer in Psalm 30, Psalm 31, "In thee, O Lord, do I seek refuge; Let me never be put to shame. In thy righteousness, deliver me." It does not say "In my, but in thy righteousness." That is the righteousness of Christ, my God, which becomes ours through faith and by the grace and mercy of God. In many passages of the Psalter, faith is called the work of the Lord, confession, power of God, mercy, truth, righteousness. All these are names for faith in Christ, rather for the righteousness which is in Christ. The apostle therefore dares to say in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He further states in Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father, that he may grant that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Therefore, this alien righteousness, instilled in us without our works by grace alone, while the Father, to be sure, inwardly draws us to Christ, is set opposite original sin. Likewise alien, which we acquire without works by birth alone, Christ daily drives out the old Adam more and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. For alien righteousness is not instilled all at once, but it begins, makes progress, and is finally perfected at the end through death. So that's the first kind of righteousness that Luther bases, the second kind of righteousness, which is our own. Back to Luther. The second kind of righteousness is our proper righteousness, not because we alone work it, but because we work with that first and alien righteousness. This is the manner of life spent profitably in good works, in the first place, in slaying the flesh and crucifying the desires with respect to the self, which we read about in Galatians 5. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In the second place, This righteousness consists to love to one's neighbor. And in the third place, in meekness and fear towards God. The apostle is full of references to these, as is all the rest of the scripture. He briefly summarizes everything, however, in Titus 2, when he says, In this world, let us live soberly, pertaining to crucifying one's own flesh, justly, referring to one's neighbor, and devoutly, Referring to God. This righteousness is the product of the righteousness of the first type. Actually, it's fruit and consequence. For we read in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the spirit, that is of a spiritual man whose very existence depends on faith in Christ, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For because the works mentioned are works of men, it is obvious that in this passage a spiritual man is called spirit. In John 3, 6, we read, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. This righteousness goes on to complete the first, for it ever strives to do away with the old Adam and to destroy the body of sin. Therefore, it hates itself and loves its neighbor. It does not seek its own good, but that of another. And in, this, and, and in this, its whole way of living consists. For in that it hates itself and does not seek its own, it crucifies the flesh. Because it seeks the good of another, it works love. Thus, in each sphere, it does God's will, living soberly with self, justly with neighbor, and devoutly towards God. This righteousness follows the example of Christ in this respect, 1 Peter 2.21. And is transformed into his likeness, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It is precisely this that Christ requires. Just as he himself did all things for us, not seeking his own good, but ours only. And in this he was most obedient to God the Father. So he desires that we also should set the example for our neighbors. We read in Romans 6, 19, that this righteousness is set opposite to our own actual sin. Paul says, For just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. Therefore, through this first righteousness arises the voice of the bridegroom who says to the soul, I am yours. But through the second kind of righteousness comes the voice of the bride who answers, I am yours. Then the marriage is consummated. It becomes strong and complete in accordance with the song of Solomon. My beloved is mine and I am his. And the soul no longer seeks to be righteous in and for itself, but it has Christ as its righteousness and therefore seeks only the welfare of others. Therefore, the Lord of the synagogue threatens through the prophet, and I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Jeremiah 7. This is what the text we are now considering says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This means you should be as inclined and disposed toward one another as you see Christ was disposed towards you. How? Thus surely that text goes on. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Verses six and seven. Now, the term form of God here does not mean the essence of God, because Christ never emptied himself of this. Neither can the phrase form of a servant be said to mean mere human essence. But the form of God is wisdom, power, righteousness, goodness and freedom, too. For Christ was a free, powerful, wise man, subject to none of the vices of sins to which all men are subject He was preeminent in such attributes as are particularly proper to the form of God. Yet he was not haughty in that form. He did not please himself, Romans 15.3. Nor did he disdain and despise those who were enslaved and subjected to various evils. He was not like the Pharisee who said, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, Luke 18. For that man was delighted that others were wretched, At any rate, he was unwilling that they should be like him. This is the type of robbery by which a man usurps things for himself. Rather, he keeps what he has and does not clearly ascribe to God the things that are God's, nor does he serve others with them, that he may become like other men. Men of this kind wish to be like God, sufficient in themselves, pleasing themselves, glorifying themselves, under obligation to no one, and so on. Not thus, however, did Christ think. Not of this stamp was his wisdom. He relinquished that form of God the Father and emptied himself, unwilling to use his rank against us, unwilling to be different from us. Moreover, for our sakes, he became as one of us and took the form of a servant. That is, he subjected himself to all evils. And although he was free, as the Apostle says of himself also in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he made himself the servant of all, Mark 9, 35, living as if all the evils which were ours were actually his own. Accordingly, he took upon himself our sin and our punishment. And although it was for us that he was conquering these things, he acted as though he were conquering them for himself. Although as far as his relationship to us was concerned, he had the power to be our God and Lord. Yet he did not will to do so, but rather desired to become our servant. As is written in Romans 15, we ought not to please ourselves. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell on me. Psalm 69.9. Quotation from the psalmist has the same meaning. As the citation from Paul, it follows that this passage, which may have which which many have understood affirmatively, ought to be understood negatively as follows: that Christ did not count himself equal to God means he did not wish to be equal to Him as those do who presumptuously grasp for equality and say to God, "If Thou wilt not give me Thy glory, I shall seize it for myself." The passage is not to be understood affirmatively as, followed, as follows. He did not think himself equal to God. That is the fact that he is equal to God. This he did not consider robbery. For this interpretation is not based on a proper understanding. since it speaks um, It speaks of Christ the man. The apostle means that each individual Christian shall become the servant of another in accordance with the example of Christ. If one has wisdom, righteousness, or power with which one can excel others and boast in the form of God, so to speak, one should not keep this to himself, but surrender it to God and become altogether as if he did not possess it, 2 Corinthians 6.10, as one of those who lack it. Paul's meaning is that when each person has forgotten himself and emptied himself of God's gifts, he should conduct himself as if his neighbor's weakness, sin, and foolishness were his very own. He should not boast or get puffed up, nor should he despise or triumph over his neighbor, as if he were God or equal to God, since God's prerogatives ought to be left to God alone. It becomes robbery when a man in haughty, foolhardiness ignores this fact. It is in this way then that one takes the form of a servant and that command of the apostle in Galatians 5.13 is fulfilled. Through love, be servants of one another. Through the figure of the members of the body, Paul teaches in Romans and 1 Corinthians, how the strong, honorable, healthy members do not glory over those that are weak, less honorable, and sick, as if they were their masters and gods, but on the contrary, they serve them the more, forgetting their own honor, health, and power. For thus, no member of the body serves itself, nor does it seek its own welfare, but that of the other. And the weaker, the sicker, the less honorable a member is, the more the others serve. That there may be, as Paul says, no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, to use Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 25. From this, it is now evident how one must conduct himself with his neighbor in each situation. And if we do not freely desire to put off that form of God and take on the form of a servant, let us be compelled to do so against our will. In this regard, consider the story in Luke 7. Luke 7. 36 through 50, where Simon the leper, pretending to be in the form of God and perching on his own righteousness, was arrogantly judging and despising Mary Magdalene, seeing in her the form of a servant. But see how Christ immediately stripped him of that form of righteousness and then clothed him with the form of sin by saying, you gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head. How great were the sins that Simon did not see nor did he think himself disfigured by such a loathsome form as he had. His good works are not at all remembered. Christ ignores the form of God in which Simon was superciliously pleasing himself. He does not recount that he was invited, dined, and honored by him. Simon the leper is now nothing but a sinner. He who seemed to himself so righteous sits divested of the glory of the form of God humiliated in the form of a servant. On the other hand, Christ honors Mary with the form of God and elevates her above Simon, saying, She has anointed my feet and kissed them. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. How great were the merits which neither she nor Simon saw. Her faults are remembered no more. Christ ignored the form of servitude in her, whom he has exalted to the form of sovereignty. Mary is nothing but righteous, elevated into the glory of the form of God. In like manner, he will treat all of us whenever we, on the ground of our righteousness, wisdom, and power, are haughty or angry with those who are unrighteous, foolish, or less powerful than we are. For when we act thus, And this is the greatest perversion. Righteousness works against righteousness. Wisdom against wisdom. Power against power. For you are powerful, not that you may make the weak weaker by oppression, but that you may make them powerful by raising them up and defending them. You are wise, not in order to laugh at the foolish and thereby make them more foolish, That you may undertake to teach them as you yourself would wish to be taught. You are righteous. That you may vindicate and pardon the unrighteous. Not that you may only condemn, disparage, judge, and punish. This is Christ's example for us. As he says, for God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3.17 He further says in Luke 9, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But the carnal nature of man violently rebels. For it greatly delights in punishment and boasting of its own righteousness and in its neighbor's shame and embarrassment at his unrighteousness. Therefore it pleads its own case and it rejoices that this is better than its neighbor's. But it opposes the case of its neighbors and wants it to appear mean. This perversity is wholly evil, contrary to love, which does not seek its own good, but that of another. 1 Corinthians 13 and Philippians 2. It ought to be distressed that the condition of its neighbor is not better than its own. It ought to wish that its neighbor's condition were better than its own. And if its neighbor's condition is the better, it ought to rejoice no less, that it rejoices when its own is the better. For this is the law and the prophets, Matthew 7. And now Luther transitions to the objection where he'll end um, here in a minute. And if you track with him, he he presents two types of, Uh, he distinguishes between two types of people, public and private persons. And then on that second type, the private persons, he will then um, distinguish between three types of those. And that's where we'll end. He'll address the public and the private person and then three ways the private person um, might uh, address this objection coming. Back to Luther. But you say it is not permissible... Is it not permissible to chasten evil men? Is it not proper to punish sin? Who is not obliged to defend righteousness? To do otherwise would give occasion for lawlessness? I answer, a single solution to this problem cannot be given. Therefore, one must distinguish among men, for men can be classified either as public or private individuals. First of all, the things which we have said do not pertain at all To public individuals, that is to those who have been placed in a responsible office by God. It is their necessary function to punish and judge evil men, to vindicate and defend the oppressed, because it is not they, but God, who do this. They are his servants in this very matter, as the apostle shows at some length in Romans 13. He does not bear the sword in vain, etc. But this must be understood as pertaining to the cases of other men, not to one's own. For no man acts in God's place for the sake of himself and his own things, but for the sake of others. If, however, a public official has a case of his own, let him ask for someone other than himself to be God's representative. For in that case, he is not a judge, but one of the parties. But on these matters, let others speak to them at other times, for it is too broad of a subject to cover now. Secondly, private individuals with their own cases are of three kinds. First, there are those who seek vengeance and judgment from the representatives of God, and these there is now a very great number. Paul tolerates such people, but he does not approve of them when he says in 1 Corinthians six twelve, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Rather, he says in the same chapter, to have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you, 1 Corinthians 6. But yet to avoid a greater evil, he tolerates this lesser one, lest they should vindicate themselves and one should use force on another, returning evil for evil, demanding their own advantages. Nevertheless, such will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless they have changed for the better by forsaking things that are merely lawful and pursuing those that are helpful. For that passion for one's own advantage must be destroyed. And the second class of private people are those who do not desire vengeance. On the other hand, in accordance with the gospel, Matthew 5, to those who would take their coats, they are prepared to give them their cloaks as well. And they do not resist any evil. These are sons of God, brothers of Christ, heirs of future blessings. In scripture, therefore, they are called fatherless, widows, desolate, because they do not avenge themselves. God wishes to be called their father and their judge, Psalm 68, 5. Far from avenging themselves, and if those in authority should wish to seek revenge in their behalf, they either do not desire it, or they don't seek it, or they just permit it. Or if they are among the most advanced, they forbid and prevent it, prepared rather to lose their other possessions also. Now suppose you say, such people are very rare, and who would be able to remain in this world were he to do this? I answer, this is not a new discovery of today, that few are saved and the gate is narrow that leads to life and those that find it are few, Matthew 7. But if none were doing this, how would the scriptures stand, which calls the poor, the orphans, and the widows, the people of Christ Therefore those in the second class grieve more over the sin over the sin of their offenders than over the loss or offense to themselves. And they do this that they may recall those offenders from their sin rather than avenge the wrongs they themselves have suffered. Therefore they put off the form of their own righteousness and put on the form of those others, praying for their persecutors, blessing those who curse, doing good to evildoers, prepared to pay the penalty and make satisfaction for their very enemies that they may be saved, Matthew 5, 44. This is the gospel and the example of Christ, Luke 23, 34. Lastly, in the third class are those in persuasion like the second type just mentioned, but are not like them in practice, they're the ones who demand back their own property or seek punishment to be meted out, but not because they seek their own advantage, but through the punishment restoration of their own things, they seek the betterment of the one who has stolen or offended. They discern that the offender cannot be improved without punishment. These are called zealots, and the scripture praises them. But no one ought to attempt this unless he is mature and highly experienced in the second class. Just mentioned lest he mistake wrath for zeal and be convicted of doing from anger and impatience that which he believes he is doing from the love of justice. For anger is like zeal and impatience is like the love of justice so that they cannot be sufficiently distinguished except by the most spiritual. Christ exhibited such zeal when he made a whip and cast out the sellers and buyers from the temple as related in John 2. Paul did likewise when he said, shall I come to you with a rod with love and a spirit of gentleness. And thus ends the reading of the sermon. Let's all pray.